Welcome to the Trend Detection Podcast, powered by Sensei, an industry leader in using AI to drive scalable and sustainable asset performance and reliability. For our ninth Trend Detection Live session, I was joined by Natalie Kurgan, Condition Monitoring Specialist at Sensei, and we used her knowledge to answer the most Google questions about predictive maintenance. It really was a lot of fun to record this, and I hope you enjoy it too. Thank you very much. <laughs> Just in time. Hello, so welcome everyone to um, Trend Detection Live. Uh, it's great to have you here this afternoon or this morning, wherever you are in the world. Um, today, we're actually talking about the most Google predictive maintenance questions. I, I spent a lot of time um, doing a lot of Googling and finding some really interesting questions to, to ask, which um, today I've, I'm really lucky to have uh, Natalie Kurgan on from our condition monitoring team. So what are the different types of maintenance um, deployed at a typical, let's say, a typical plant? Yeah, so we generally have three types of maintenance. Um, we've got reactive maintenance, planned maintenance, and predictive maintenance. But it really, maintenance is a spectrum. So it's not just saying you have one of three. It could really fall in between. So reactive maintenance, that's your firefighting. Something breaks, and you have to go running and go fix it. Um, Planned maintenance is when you say, okay, this thing usually breaks every six months, so let's go and do maintenance on it every five months, and maybe that will help to keep it from breaking. Um, predictive maintenance takes it a step further. It's really using data from your machines to understand the health of the machine so that you can minimize how much planned maintenance you're doing because it's expensive and also minimize how much reactive maintenance you're doing. Um, usually people do some combination of the three. We would never recommend somebody just abandon all planned and reactive maintenance and have monitoring on every light bulb that doesn't make sense. No, exactly. Focus in the right areas and all that, I'd say. Um, well, what, what I was going to ask, actually, so maybe we dive into that a little bit more about mixing those methodologies. So um, I, guess, I guess it's a bit too broad to say what's the right mix, but yeah, why would you recommend mixing some of those methodologies rather than going all in on predictive maintenance or preventative maintenance, for example. Yeah, so, you know, something like, like I just mentioned, a light bulb in your facility, would you really be saving time and money to know beforehand if that light bulb is about to go out? Or would it be equally expensive and time consuming to just replace it when it fails? Um, probably it would be more expensive to be monitoring every light bulb in a facility. But what if you have a very, very important air filtration system where uh, if it goes down, you have to evacuate your building and shut down production. That is a very highly critical piece of equipment that you might want to be doing predictive maintenance on. And if you know it needs to be lubricated every three months, then keep lubricating it every three months. Um, as far as other more invasive maintenance goes, you might rely more on predictive maintenance to tell you when you should be doing big activities. So it could really just be, a, like I said, a spectrum of what you're doing. Yeah, and I was, I was just losing my train of thought there for a second, but um, so we predict, sorry, yeah, we predict a maintenance. It, is it just a case of focusing on those critical machines or is it recommended to sort of focus on a broader set of machines? It doesn't necessarily have to be the most critical or, is just get an understanding of that. 
Yeah, so it's certainly a journey to get towards predictive maintenance. And, you know, I would definitely recommend starting with the most critical pieces of equipment, the pieces that if they fail, you're, you're looking at a lot of downtime, or maybe you're putting a ton of money into plan maintenance on these critical machines that you want to try and minimize. So when we start with a new client, we often look at we look at the different machine groups and we say, okay, which ones are the most critical? Let's start with those and then we'll work our way down the list. Pretty much we want to, we want to focus on anything that can cause a hard stop. <laughs> no, exactly as well. So maybe we could dive into that bit more as well. So how, uh, we haven't made it past the, fir- the first question, but I just keep thinking of new, <laughs> new questions to ask. So I'll stop after this one maybe and move on to the next one. But as I, what are the, um, sort of criteria is there for selecting the right assets, let's say, like you said, to start with, you know, there's got to be a starting point with predictive maintenance. Yeah. So starting points, you know, usually clients come to us with already, they have assets in mind. These people, they know their machines. We don't, we're just facilitating this process to, to help them monitor their machines. So we will, um, we have some templates and workshops that we do to sort of categorize them in terms of criticality and how important each one is and what the cost is associated with each type of asset. But then really to get started, it's, it's a little bit of work to get onboarded with, with Sensei. So we like to start with an asset that isn't too complex, that is very critical. Um, and that there's a lot of. That way, the very first thing you have in the app can already be creating success while we work on the more complex assets. So that sounds like a sensible approach to me. Um, so, yeah, so to move on to the second, our second question, uh, which is sort of changing gears slightly, I guess. So um, why do you need predictive maintenance in the first place? I guess plants have been running for years without... Um, although I found out recently that predictive maintenance has been going on for many, many years, probably before the sort of technology aspect took over. But um, so, yeah. So what, why do we need predictive maintenance? Or when you're talking to, say, new new customers what or prospects, let's say, what what's that? What's their why, why do they need it? Why are they coming to us? Yeah. So some of them come to us because they're frustrated with how high their costs are for planned maintenance. And they think they're just really over-maintaining machines. Others come to us because they want to gain more understanding of their machines. They don't know what the data looks like when an asset's failing, and they want to know what that looks like so they can prevent it. Um, so those are, I think, two of the biggest reasons why people would, would come and, and want to implement uh, predictive maintenance. It actually started in the 60s. Airlines, <laughs> aircraft. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really important for, um, for, for safety purposes too, right? So if, if, you, if you have a catastrophic, catastrophic failure in something like a steel making facility, if you've ever seen videos of a steel a sheet coming out and it flails around and it's like white hot and it could be hitting people. So if we can predict that that's going to happen, maybe, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, that'd be great if you could predict, predict that very specific thing to happen, but we don't um, maybe venture too far into that area, but that's an interesting point though, because I think a lot there's a temptation, I think to focus a lot on unplanned downtime as the main, you know, 
driver and saver. And I think maybe over the years that there's been a focus on that. But your point there suggests that there's other areas, outcomes, let's say business outcomes to focus on aside from the maybe the more traditional saving downtime or keeping machines running for longer. Right. And, you know, these days I'm noticing, I'm sure everybody's noticing that there's a real lack of maintenance people. There's just not enough manpower. So if you have people walking around a line collecting data every single day and they have to maintain the equipment, um, what if we can save time of them having to manually analyze data to see how their machines are doing and just feed the data into an algorithm? Exactly. And let the automation do its work. Um, and actually, on on that point, that actually leads quite nicely into the next question where, um, obviously, um, the Sensei platform focuses a lot around AI, machine learning, all their terms sort of banded around. So when we talk about predictive maintenance, what, what is it in combination with machine learning? How does that, how does that work, I guess, in, on a basic sort of level? So the simplest way to explain it is we feed in data into the app. And, and what's nice about Sensai is that we are not having to go in and design a specific model for every single asset. We get an understanding of the asset type in general. We figure out what condition indicators we need in the data to tell us what the health is like at any given moment. And we give it to the app. Uh, and the app builds its own models and it, it will build one on its own for every single individual asset based on what we tell it. So what it's doing is it will look at the data as it's first coming in and it will assume, okay, this is normal. Asset is a normal operating conditions. Um, so it will establish sort of a normal baseline or a fingerprint, if you will. And if the data, this is a really simple explanation, but if the data after that changes from its fingerprint, the app will tell you about it. Um, and where the machine learning comes in is if you don't like the detection, you can provide feedback into the app and the algorithms will learn to maybe desensitize a little bit or to adjust what they're doing so they don't keep giving you the same detections that you have said you don't like. Yes. So so it's also not just about, I think maybe that's a or misconception, not just a misconception, but I mean, it's not just set the technology and, and let it go, but actually the thing about Sensei as well, it's that the human input is is as important as well as what you're saying. Yeah, so I guess that's, you know, that's a that can be a sort of frustrating aspect is maybe everybody has a different idea of what is predictive maintenance when they come to us. And I don't know what they've been told, but a lot of people seem to think that it's magic. Um, that it's a magic black box, you can feed whatever terrible data into it that you want and you'll get amazing results. And as we know, that that's not how it works. So the app is as good as what you put into it. Um, if you add more and more export knowledge that you have, if you know a threshold, say, absolutely, this current cannot exceed this threshold and we want to know about it if it does, we can put that in and we can start generating some cool forecasts for if your data starts reaching up to that level, not just when it surpasses it. Yeah, I, re I really think you would have, you'd have loved our um, uh, predictive maintenance myths episode that we um, that I did with Jonathan Bonner, um, one of our colleagues, a couple of weeks ago because we we talked about that as well um, about, about that side of things and how people think it's magic, you know, feed feed in and and off you go. I mean, only if it if it was <laughs> would be would be would be great, wouldn't it? But um, 
on a, on another side of things as well, I think another term that's often um, sort of banded around with AI, machine learning tools in general, not just predictive maintenance, but is um, algorithms and that sort of things. And it makes most people's heads sort of spin about what that actually means. But it might be useful to dig into that. Well, it's another question for Google, actually. So it's not just me asking this, but um, about which algorithm is you well the question actually is which algorithm is used for predictive maintenance but i think you're going to say natalie that's probably not as a simple answer as that oh it's this one algorithm a we will use for this one or maybe i don't know no so we use many different algorithms and the, the important thing to remember is that again like you said it's not magic these algorithms are created by humans so um if you're looking at some data and you with your own eyes cannot see anything spectacular in the data, but you know something happened there, you can't expect the algorithms to magically pull out something from it if it's not there. So sometimes we have to go back and look at the data again and find better condition indicators. Um, but as far as what the algorithms are doing, we have two that are working just right out of the box. As soon as data comes into Sensei, we have an anomaly detection engine and a trend detection engine. Anomalies are detecting things like sudden step changes, sudden changes, maybe a spike. Um, and so it's detecting sort of short-term abrupt changes. The trend detection pipeline de detects long-term changes. So if, if the data starts slowly drifting upward or slowly drifting downward, um, it'll tell you that your data is drifting. Um, we do have other, other algorithms that can be enabled. So the one I briefly mentioned was is if you know a certain alarm level, what we call a threshold, and you put that in, you can enable forecasting on it. So what that'll do is not just tell you when your data crosses the threshold, but it will tell you when your data is approaching and approximately when it will cross that threshold and you'll need to intervene. I think that's a really cool aspect of our app. Um, the other things we can do is if we have seen a failure in the data in the past, we can enable uh, sort of prognostics and failure matching. So pretty much the same thing as a threshold. We can tell you when the data is matching and tell you that your, your machine is in a state of failure. And we can also predict when it's degrading, when it's on its way to that failure based on the data that it's seen before. That one is a little bit harder to enable just because you have to, our whole point is we don't want to see failures in your data. We want to prevent them. But in order to do that one, we need to see a failure. So it's a little bit of a catch 22. Yeah, that's interesting. And actually on with those different algorithms, do they, do they work at the same time? Do you switch one on for some machines and not for others? Or are they, um, are they just all just part of the process? So out of the box, Anomalies and trends are both enabled. However, you can disable them and just use a threshold with forecast if you want. Um, you can do that in the app yourself. Other things, but we, we have a lot of control over these algorithms. So someone like me, if you say, look, I don't want anomalies. I only want trends and I only want to see them if they're going up. Um, I can do that. We can do that for you in the back end. Um, and it's actually a really simple thing. It's just not in the UI just yet. It will be soon. Um, we can also put even tighter constraints and say, I only want to know about an anomaly if it changes above baseline by more than 20%. Yeah, we can do that. So we can, we can fine tune all of these things once they, once they start generating cases. 
No, fantastic. Um, just a, as a caveat, making product prom promises. Um, <laughs> I hope you're confident about saying that, Natalie, because this is on record, remember. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, so, that, brilliant. It's good. Dan, Dan will, be, will be fine with that. It's all good. Um, now, what I wanted to bring at this point, we've actually got a question coming from Terry. Thank you, Terry, for your question. It's quite a long question. So, um, uh, I'll, just, I'll, just, yeah, I'll just read it all out now. So, at my plant, we have a lot of critical disparate plant. Holding spare parts for every critical system would be impossible. I'd hope that predictive systems would allow me to foresee a failure and order the spare before the failure. In the current market, lead times are going from 7 to 14 days to 6 months or more. Are your customers or prospective customers now stating that predictive maintenance doesn't help reduce your spare parts inventory? Right, so that is that is another reason why people might come to us is to to keep better inventory, right? Um, so with that forecasting that I mentioned, that goes twenty eight days out, and you know, keep in mind it, it data is imperfect. So as the further away you get from now, it might get a little more uncertain, but it should give you an idea. Okay, we need to replace this thing within the next twenty eight days, um, and so you should be able to to monitor for that and. You know, a lot of these failures, they don't take place instantaneously. I would not suggest you monitor for instantaneous failures with predictive maintenance because you, can you predict an instantaneous failure all the time? I'm not too sure. Um, however, if you start seeing a lot more cases being raised on assets, even from things like the anomalies and the trends, that might be an indicator to you based on your understanding of your machine that your, your machine might be in an early state of failure. Um, so you can go investigate it and see what might be degrading. Yeah, no, so, and just at this point, I don't want to. Oh. Yeah, in short, in short, no, that's okay. So yeah, in, in short, yes, <laughs> we we do. I know it is something we talk about. So all I was going to mention, I don't use this to plug things too much. We do have a partnership with um, a company called Endowed Solutions, where they actually automate that side of things, so the supply chain. So when the condition of a asset gets to a certain state, it'll note it'll um, notify the CRM and the ERP, and it'll raise sort of invoices for spare parts, and it'll order the spare part. I say just in time, so you don't have to hold that spare. So that's just a, a an aside, an aside to that really. But we do talk about that on you know from a marketing perspective quite a lot about reducing those spares for those reasons that Natalie um, explained there. So hopefully, Terry, that answers your question. Let us know if you've got any follow up to that. We can um, we can add to that as well. So, um, so yeah, I wanted to move on to our next question as well. So, um, which is quite quite an interesting one as well because I think when I joined Sensei, this is when I saw these two terms together. I did I in interchange and put them side by side. Are they are they the same? Um, but what is the difference between condition monitoring and predictive maintenance in your eyes? All the main differences. So it's just one step up. So. I actually work with one customer who is coming from, is coming to predictive maintenance with Sensei from doing condition-based condition maintenance, um, condition monitoring, you might call. So what they had done already is that they had data, they understood it, they understood how it related to the health of their asset, but they were manually analyzing the data without help of algorithms. So they were just looking at it 
and seeing, hmm, is anything changing here that I should be aware of? And they would go and do their maintenance. That is so much work. <laughs> um, if you have a huge facility and so many assets and so much data, wow, that's a lot to look at. So the, the nice thing about Sensei is it doesn't care how much data you have, just give it all in. It'll take it and it'll just tell you about the things that thinks are important. And so they're actually, they're seeing a lot more stuff that they had never noticed before. And they're learning a lot more about their assets um, because they're only looking at the things that are being highlighted. And we, we also, we did some work creating condition indicators that are new to them. So yeah, I would say that's, that's the difference is condition based monitoring is, yeah, you're looking at data, but it, it might be even in a program and it might be giving you like SCADA alarms. It might be giving you some thresholds, but it might not be predicting so much. Yeah. And that, and actually we have a, a quite a useful section on our website called get started. Again, it's plus sound on plugging again, but it, it's useful because it actually shows the differences between the different approaches and what the advantages and disadvantages of each one. Cause again, there's probably some advantages to some, but not, others obviously predict maintenance is great so <laughs> there's no disadvantage there but um so the the next question is about i mean i think i might skip this one actually because it's actually talking about how does predictive maintenance work and unless there's anything you've added to what you've said before natalie i think you've explained it quite well but is there anything you want to add to that question in particular yeah i think i've already talked about that really yeah we'll skip that one then Skip there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, yeah, if anyone's got any specific questions about that, um, yeah, just drop them in the chat again. That's really good. Um, so actually, so the next one is, and it's, it makes sense that people are researching this, but examples of um, predictive maintenance, or I guess what they're really looking for is successful um, predictive maintenance. And without, you know, obviously you work with a lot of different customers. I'm trying to think of a customer. I mean, Maybe you could talk about Alcoa maybe a little bit and some of the successes they've had. Maybe that, that's probably a good one, unless you have another example, a better example. Yeah, well, I was, I was actually, am I allowed to talk about Nissan? I think so, right? They're on the okay. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a little difficult. We have we have loads of successful you know, cases with, with predictive maintenance with our customers, otherwise they wouldn't probably stay with us. <laughs> so Nissan started with us early on. And from what I understand, you know, they have many different sites, but some of their sites, our predictive maintenance is the core of their maintenance strategy. Um, they don't go and perform maintenance on certain things unless Sensei tells them to go do it. So how they've gotten to this point is by being very engaged with the app, providing lots of feedback. And like I said, the app is as good as what you put in. So they've put in a lot and they've gotten out a lot. So they've, I don't have the numbers in front of me now. I'm sure you do of how much money they've saved and the downtime avoided, um, but it's, it's massive. And so they've done a, a fantastic job with that. Yeah. I mean, because I've, because I've memorized the case study and, you know, for, for moments like this, I mean, no, the figure, the figures are, the, the figures are quite staggering. I guess that's why, um, why Natalie's chosen to highlight it really, because, I mean, there's there's figures which, you know, yeah. So there's figures they've saved millions of unplanned downtime, and that's a general figure. But that that figure is just continuously rising. We see we see that, but also, I mean, they saw return on investment very quickly as well within three months. Which I'm just looking to see if that's actually a question. But 
yeah, I guess I was a question for me, or maybe for the benefit of the audience. But how how long do you have to wait realistically to see a return on investment? And it can be a tricky answer because there's loads of variables, of course. <laughs> but what does start time mean? I would say start time is when you have data coming in, good data coming in. Um, typically, we, once data is coming in and it's qu it's quality data, we can see ROI within three months. But it it depends if you baby your assets or if your assets just don't fail. <laughs> um, then in that case, you might be looking for something else. We might be insurance to make sure that all of your, your equipment is running properly. Um, people use us in all different, for all different sorts of KPIs. But yeah, I'd say three months is a, is a reasonable number. That's good. We're, yeah, with certain, certain caveats, which I think which I think is fair enough as well. I mean, one thing, one way I've heard since I described internally, yeah, yeah, internally a few times is actually as a decision support tool as well. I, mean, I guess that feeds back into that we're not magic because actually we're just sort of pointing you, saying you might want to look at this, but we're not. Yeah, so I mean, would you agree with that assessment, Natalie? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And it is improving all the time. So we do have um, ability to do diagnostic sort of messaging, which the user themselves can put in and say, I know that if we reach this level in the threshold, I know that this particular bearing is failing in this motor. So they can put that message in so that when a case is raised on that particular information, it tells you exactly, hey, go check this bearing in this motor because it might be failing. Um, yeah, so we are improving that sort of messaging all the time and it can be a really useful tool. No, fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and I know we've, we've talked about, uh, you know, about return on investment and how long that takes, but how do you actually get started with predictive maintenance? Um, and again, it's a general question. It depends, I guess, what sort of stage or maturity maybe you're at, but, um, I mean, I guess we could look at two scenarios here. So some, so a company that maybe doesn't have, isn't collecting any, any data whatsoever. <laughs> and one which has an abundance of data, but, and is often when I speak to people at events and, or, you know, um, at events and they, they say to me, oh, we've got all this data from all these different sources, but actually we don't really know what to do with it. So I guess they've been told to collect this data because it's important for their assets, but now it's like now, now what? So, so in those two scenarios, I guess, how, how would you get, recommend they get sort of started we we have seen a lot of both of those scenarios so the <laughs> i will say that our general requirement first is that we need data we need streaming we need sensors installed on machines and we need that data to be coming into a place where we are able to access it one way or the other it can't be siloed and just stored somewhere and put away exactly like you said because they don't know what to do with it. So they're saying, well, we have it. Okay, great. <laughs> um, so that, that's the first requirement. So you need data um, and you need to, we need to be able to access it. That should be an obvious requirement. We do also have though, we have a way of taking a manual measurement. So if you have like operator driven data collection, um, where people do rounds every so often on machines and collect the data point for a machine maybe every week. Not ideal, but we can take that into the app. 
Um, and we do it for, for one particular client that I'm thinking of. They do a lot of continuous monitoring, but they also have a lot of manual measurements. So we just take it all in. Um, that's the, that's the base requirement. Now you might know a little bit more than I do now about the Sensei starter packs. I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Yeah. Oh, you're interviewing me now. No, bring me into the pitch. But uh, that's absolutely right. So yeah, we, so yeah, we introduced, um, I think it was uh, last year, I think middle of last year, we introduced starter packs. We actually did identify and um, the fact that there were certain customers who, who wanted to get started, but maybe didn't have the, the hardware or the sensors, like Natalie said, that are required to sort of get started. So what we've done is we've worked with some select partners to essentially bundle our software with, um, you know, with with these sensors, so you can get started, start collecting data. I think we the headline figures within fourteen days. Um, so it's a maybe it's a two marketing figure, but yeah, it's essentially to get you up and running. So we saw that there were maybe were some barriers to actually getting started with predictive maintenance, and what we wanted to do is open those doors um, to all. Let's say if that's not too cheesy to say. I would say the other barrier has nothing to do with data and has everything to do with people. Um, like I said, I don't know who people talk to before they talk to us, but sometimes maybe they've been told that it's super easy to connect with another system. And, you know, we're cloud-based. We don't have to install anything. It should be relatively simple, but we still require some dedicated IT time and some dedicated personnel to be invested in the project at the very beginning to get it up and running, um, which is totally normal. But I think you know, I don't know what they've been told by other folks in the past about how easy it is to get data out. Um, is, is that quite, I know, I know we talked about, you know, it being magic and all, all these different myths and myths, we covered a lot of myths in our, one of our previous episodes, but is that, is that quite common where, where people have been, let's say, misinformed <laughs> about, and is it a sort of an industry thing? Do you think it's other... Well, not to blame competitors. I don't know. Is it sort of, is it just the way the industry sees predictive maintenance? Maybe it needs more education in that area, possibly. I think I think there's a lot of misinformation about predictive maintenance out there that it's like a magic black box. I keep saying that, but that's that's really the hurdle that we encounter with people is they they don't realize that there is effort involved, especially in the beginning. Once it's up and running, it, it's a fantastic tool, but it takes some effort. Um, and so we see it all over the time. Now, I think PDM is a buzzword a little bit. And so people are throwing it around left and right and maybe using it in context in which it's not actually predictive maintenance. Um, so we, we do struggle a little bit with that. So we just keep, we keep trying to convey you know the, what it really is and and get people on the right track yeah we'll keep flying the flag as best we can <laughs> um i was i was going to ask actually it would be good to dive in a bit more on on that cultural side because we do talk about that a lot and we have you know we have our own sort of methodology to help overcome let's say some of those barriers and i know you're you're there's something very close to your heart as well so um yeah so maybe talk about that a bit more would be useful I'm going to put a plug in for Omniverse then. So uh, we, we sort of have a, a, a yeah. <laughs> so Sensei has a sort of sister platform uh, called Sensei PDM Omniverse, and it's basically a knowledge base. Um, so in this platform, we pretty much document in detail the steps to getting started with Sensei and predictive maintenance 
from the very, very beginning up until when somebody's running steadily. And even after that, if you want to scale or if we want to go back and revisit some, some assets that maybe are underperforming. Um, so in, in part of that, we have online trainings in there. We have templates, we have workshops, we have all sorts of material to guide people. Um, it's not meant for, for users to just go in and try to guide themselves. It's, it's for us to show users, this is what we're doing next. It's all laid out. Um, and one of the steps in there that personally I feel is the most critical, it's our third step in the process, and it's called um, PDM and operating context. And pretty much I like to call it why Sensei. Um, because as you know, it, it, if you're somebody working in a plant, you have tons of work all the time. You have to use all these different programs. Nobody wants to be told by somebody new coming in, Hey, you have to change everything you're doing and come use this new thing. Uh, nobody wants to do that. Of course it's extra work, isn't it? So the whole point of that workshop is to have it as a team led exercise. We don't really want to come in and lecture at anybody why they should use Sensei. That seems maybe not great. So we have instead their sort of team leader coming in and saying, hey, we have these big problems. Look at all this downtime we have. Look at all this money we're spending. You guys are so busy. What if we try to use Sensei and try to address these problems to make everybody's lives easier and to, to improve profitability and efficiency? So we have this whole workshop that is, is led um, it takes one or two sessions. We, we like to do it in person if we can't. COVID has kind of put a wrench in that. <laughs> so after that, they go into training and they get using the app right away. And we just, we, we just get them running right away. As soon as there's good data and everything in the app, we, we get them in. And it's, it's helped a lot. It's made a big difference. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I think, again, it's... I think that's something maybe we've learned as a company over the years as well. Is it, it's a wider thing than just the maintenance. The person on the floor, it's it's actually there's a lot more stakeholders involved who need who need to be involved um, from the very early stages, let's say as well. So, can you talk about that a little bit more and who what type of stakeholders are involved in, in sort of predicting maintenance projects? Yeah, it. Geez, everybody everybody should be involved. I think maintenance is really underprioritized. They're, they're always, you know, maintenance workers are always the ones that are blamed whenever anything goes wrong, but how often are they really provided the resources that they need and really you know, commended and they're often understaffed, right? So obviously the people on the floor are our first line of defense, but then we have our reliability engineers. Um, those tend to be the people in the app on a daily basis, although it changes, but customer by customer, you use it however works for your workflow. Um, so just, I guess, to answer your question, in a general workflow, day to day, we have somebody going in and using the app to see what new cases are brought up. Somebody that might be the same person, they'll go in and investigate the case to see if it's really a, a legitimate case that's a, a a failure that is happening right now, or if it's something that looks like it's degrading, but it's not failing yet, or if it's something that we need to go back and revisit the data because it's maybe not a good case. Um, uh, they will then pass on to the maintenance folks, hey, can you go and look at this machine and see what it looks like? They'll come back, right? So they're working together. Um, and then you have your higher level people who might be your plant managers who might be going in and looking at more of our statistics page rather than the day-to-day. -day. 
So the app has all these statistics listed saying, oh, here's how many cases are open, here's the average ratings, here's your, you know, here's how much downtime you've avoided, here are your other KPIs, whatever you want to put in that's a KPI, we can put in. You could put in labor saved, you could put in water saved or you know, environmental money that you didn't have to pay because you didn't spill anything or what have you. Um, and then we have even people higher up. If you have multiple sites, they can look at a whole map and see how all the different sites are comparing to one another and see if any anything extra needs to be done. Does that answer your question? It does very well. Thank you. <laughs> no, it does. It does. It does. It's inter yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so it's like the app isn't yeah, is it's built yeah, primarily for the for the main suppose, but it doesn't mean that other stakeholders let's say can can benefit and use it in their own way which i guess is the, the main way for the it's designed for for them to see the stuff that they're most interested in i guess is the best way to put it yeah yeah um yeah i see so we come to the end we've still got a long list of questions but i'm actually looking through them and i feel like you've covered a lot of these in your answers so well done you <laughs> first of all um but just to pick one final one out as we're, we're, we're run, fast running out of time. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, why, I guess overall, I can summarize in all these projects. We've had lots of successes. We talked about Nissan earlier, but why, why did, why does predictive maintenance fail? And I know we've, we've mentioned things like culture, um, but maybe a summer, a summary of the key, the key reasons why these, these projects tend to fail and don't get out of, and another episode we've had is about pilots as well. And they don't get out of that pilot phase as well but you know in general i guess why do, why do they fail so one of the oh, geez there's a few reasons and it's not usually due to the actual predictive software um i'll toot our own horn our, our software is great but like i keep saying you get out what you put in um number one maintenance is not generally a very big supported area in a facility they're understaffed they're under you know they don't have enough resources to really promote the project and they have so much other work to do that, you know, there is a little bit of a learning curve to starting up with predictive maintenance. It takes some time for it to be working really well. And if they're not given their resources, then they don't have the time to put into it. Um, another reason why it might fail is that they just don't use it for that cultural aspect of like, okay, we have this new thing, but we don't want it. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Um, so that's what our step three workshop tries to address is get everybody like this instead of, Hey, you use this and no, we won't do it. And then that's it. Right. <laughs> um, and then the third reason that I can think of is that you're monitoring the wrong things. If you are monitoring things that don't fail, how can we help? Um, if you are monitoring things that don't have appropriate data. If they don't have condition indicators, we, we kind of need those, right? And we can derive those. We get very creative. I'm not saying you need vibration on every rotating piece of equipment. We have other things and we have other tools at our disposal, but we need something to indicate the health of the machine. Um, so if you're, if you're monitoring a bunch of you know, suction cups that hold something and randomly these suction cups fall off and there's no prediction necessary for that, then what can we do, <laughs> right? We'll tell you, hey, it fell off. You probably know that already. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like it's like the 
No, thank you. Thank you. Sorry, I spoke over you a little bit there. I think there was a delay actually there, but no, no, really, really well summarized. And I guess just finally, I, I think I could squeeze one more, one more question in. Um, and it's around like the types of companies that um, adopt predictive maintenance. I mean, you, you could talk, talk about some of our customers, but I guess there's lots of different industries that could benefit from, from that, that's from our, our technology. Oh gosh, we have, yeah, we, we don't, we don't discriminate. <laughs> uh, so uh, we've got auto, we've got auto manufacturers. Um, I say anyone that's got, in particular, if you have a lot of critical machines in your process, and especially if you have multiple of the same type of machine, and predictive maintenance would be great for you because you don't have to rebuild. If you have 300 robot arms all doing the same thing, you just need to figure out what you need from one of them and then get them all in and it's working. Um, so we, we work with FMCG, you know, food manufacturers, products, you know, people, product manufacturers. Uh, there's probably a better way to say that. <laughs> I like people products. Um, we work with metals and mining. So like <laughs> consumer goods, that's nice. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a salesperson. <laughs> um, Right, so we, we we've got metals and mining. So I, I work mostly with just it just as it happens to be. I work with more sort of steel manufacturers and you know an aluminum manufacturer um, because they've got these long lines that are really critical. Where if any one machine in that line goes down, the whole thing goes down. So it's not limited to that type of customer. But if you have a situation like that, we have a lot of critical machines. If one goes down, the whole thing goes down. Then predictive maintenance might be something for you to look into. Fantastic, fantastic. And there we are. We've we've come to the end. Um, I think we've we've got through most of the list, and I think you've summarised a lot of the other questions. I mean, just just for people's interest's sake. So there was questions here about what are the challenges in predictive maintenance, which I think we've well covered. What is required for predictive maintenance? Again, well covered, and. Oh yeah, we've done that company, and then the difference between preventative and predictive. But I think you you summarise that well at the start when you were summing up the different ones as well. So, I think I think that's all all summarised. So, all I can say is thank you so much for joining us, Natalie. It's been a really good session. Your dog was very well behaved, I have to say as well. So, well, <laughs> sleeping sleeping very quietly in the background. Oh, yeah, very nice. Um, exactly exactly um i think i need to sleep now it's very hot in this room but um but no thank you thank you so much natalie it's been a really great session i hope everyone listening has has got something out of it as well and has learned a lot and we'll see you next time so yeah thank you very much so there you have it the answers to the most google questions about predictive maintenance if you have any other questions about pdm please don't hesitate to contact us by emailing marketing at sensei.io. We're hosting a live session every two weeks. So if you're interested in joining the next one, please sign up to our email newsletter to be notified about exact dates, timings, and topics. This will be in the show notes, so you'll have the link there. Please subscribe via your favorite podcast provider if you'd like to be notified about future episodes. And it would mean a lot if you could let us know your feedback by leaving us a review. You can find out more about how Sensei can reduce unplanned downtime and contribute towards improved sustainability within your manufacturing plants by visiting Sensei.io. Thanks a lot for listening.